Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and thank you so much for listening. I have one announcement. On January 14th, um, from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I will be hosting a virtual workshop with the amazing and former podcast guest, uh, Ilya Parker of Decolonizing Fitness. And I'm thrilled to be collaborating with them. I think there's going to be a lot for everyone to learn and experience in this two-hour workshop. The cost is $75 per person. The Link is in my Instagram bio, or you can go to livinginthisqueerbody.com to register. The workshop is called Finding Pleasure in Purposeful Movement. So this workshop is an opportunity to explore all the nuances of the provocation, what is healthy movement? And Ilya Parker of Decolonizing Fitness and I um, are going to lead you through both a discussion about this and also you will have an opportunity to kind of begin to develop thoughts about purposeful movement practice in your own life and potentially in the lives of the people with whom you work. Um, We will talk about a lot of questions like how do we relate to movement in a heteronormative and divergent body averse society what is purposeful movement what is orthorexia how do we know what our motivations for movement are Ilya is particularly well suited to help me with this really complex question Ilya is a black non-binary transmasculine person in a larger body with chronic injuries who works as a physical therapist assistant and personal trainer. Ilya will speak to the ways they felt pressure to medically transition and modify their body through exercise to align with a cis masculine presentation leading to many injuries. Ilya will also discuss the ways they incorporate pleasure in purposeful movement in ways that feel supportive. And I will spend some time talking about disordered eating and specifically orthorexia, um, my own personal journey in attempting to balance, quote, health, unquote, and rest and movement. Um, I also will bring in discourses around interrogating the impact of healthism, nutritionism, and the wellness diet on the overwhelming preponderance of orthorexia in the queer, trans, and non-binary community. I really encourage you to think about signing up for this. And Ilya is, this is basically just a platform for Ilya to be amazing. I really admire them so much. And I look forward to potentially seeing you on January 14th uh, for this workshop. So now we'll move on to our episode. And this is another person um, that I really admire greatly. And um, in this episode, we talk about 
a lot of things. Queerness, body shame, disordered eating, Islamophobia, pregnancy, questions around activism and self-care, and a lot more. Rage does a million rad things, and it was truly an honor to interview them in the midst of their last moments of pregnancy. I'm inspired by them and all they do, truly, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Rage is a queer Muslim migrant from Karachi, Pakistan. They're a public defender and organizer around the criminal punishment system and prosecutor accountability with Courtwatch NYC and five borough defenders. Since moving to Brooklyn almost a decade ago, Rage's work and activism has focused on queer and trans liberation, immigrant justice, and prison abolition. They're also a visual artist, media maker, hairstylist, and co-host and co-producer of the amazing podcast, Bad Brown Aunties. I hope you enjoy this episode. Rage, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really lovely. I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. I love your podcast. We'll talk about that later. But uh, so I like to start each episode with, you know, some, uh, a kind of question that you can kind of take any way you'd like to. But if you can think about, you know, your earliest memories of, having a body or learning about having a body messages you received or stories that that come to mind I love this question I love it because I think about a lot of my I sort of like I was born at seven months I was Mm. not found my mom had an emergency c-section my dad wasn't there I feel like I nearly died my mother nearly died Mm -hmm. um so much of everything that followed became sort of linked to that in some weird way. So there's, you know, I was born completely blue and I was really tiny. And I remember all these jokes about how my aunt was there to like held me first and handed me to my mom. And she laughed about how my mother like both looked like, (laughs) looked like she'd seen an alien. And um, it was like stuff that everyone just thought was really funny, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I realized that it shaped so much of how I thought about one, my own pregnancy and then two, how it sort of shaped the narrative about me as a kid. So then I ended up being, and I still am like a a small person. My bones are really small. I'm like built sort of small. When I was little, I was like, you know, like two years sort of smaller than the average kid. Yeah. It's, it's just sort of wild to think that, that that has shaped so much of my experience because I, mm. I think one of the things that's been true for me for a lot of my life is that I haven't thought about my body a lot on some like on a, on a present level, but it's obviously been present. Right. And that's why I love your podcast so much. Cause I think it's really, really helpful to think about obviously this like filter that we navigate the world through, but mm-hmm. then like, aren't necessarily always engaging with consciously or disassociated from, or um, that's really helpful information. And so I don't think, 
I, I think part, partly like some of it is like growing up with this idea that if something is difficult, you trudge through it. And so like, if you feel small, then that's, there's a, there's a, there's a limitation in you if you aren't able to sort of move past that. Or if you, if someone says that like, you're really tiny and weak, that instead of questioning the fact that that information is actually really complicated and problematic and maybe we need to like receive it differently or maybe it doesn't need to be shared but that instead it it must be something in you if you can't receive that and so I think there's a way in which like I remember feeling really ashamed about it or feeling really shy about it and then like I used to do Indian classical dance as a kid and being small had some sort of currency in that space Mm -hmm. later on Um, and I remember like my closest friend, I asked her to come to dance class with me and, um, we just had really different bodies and we were placed in different rows and really far apart, even though it was just a class and it didn't really matter that we were standing in some sort of formation. And it just became this thing that like, I was always in the front of the class and she was always in the back. And we got a lot of information about like, how we related to each other really shifted because of it, because my dance teacher who is incredible in a lot of other ways, um, perpetuated a lot of things that I think dancing does. And so Mm, like, what? well, like, I don't think I'd ever experienced someone being told that they should be more like me. Cause I was sort of the like runt outcast person, my family and in life. And so, you know, it, it felt funny that, this, uh, this this person was suddenly being told to be like me and it, it shifted our dynamic a lot in terms of power um, mm-hmm. in a way that like neither of us could really help, you know, like I remember my mother having a lot of shame because everyone would always comment on whether she was feeding me enough. And, mm-hmm. she, and so she felt really like, I remember her like stressing out about it and saying, you have to eat more people keep asking me. And that was her own sort of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, so I think that mm-hmm. small has really shaped a lot of things. And then I think it's had a huge impact in terms of trauma in my life and in terms of this like belief. I'm not going to talk about that specifically, but I think it has impacted sort of this belief that, I, that the smallness makes me a target or that or it makes it easy or, so, or something, you know. And I think that's been that's been really huge. And then... I, I look back at journals from college even and I and I think about how so much of them are about getting physically stronger and how I could probably pick up a journal from last month and it says something that implies that, you know, or says mm. that. Yeah. So so strength like your your solution in some ways the way that you feel like you have navigated both external sort of expectations or projections on you and also some traumatic experiences. Like one thing has really been about that you, it sounds like that you've maybe reclaimed for yourself. I don't know how, uh, what your relationship to it is, but is this idea of strength, like what that means to you? Um, I actually don't love it. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that, I mean, I, I don't mean that in a way to be judgmental of myself or anyone else who feels like physical, like 
strength or, you know, like learning how to box or like learning how, like all of those things are incredible survival strategies and responses to things. And like, I don't mean this with shame, but I do think that I don't love the fact that I, I think it goes back to that initial point that I said about when someone says something to you, this like need to sort of like build yourself up as a response. Like, I, I don't think that that needs to be the response. I think a lot of things need to change. I think people need to probably not say those things or that there's different ways to be strong. And like, it's like an ableist sort of idea to think like, oh, I should get physically stronger, whatever that means, you know? And like, it's a compensatory, it's like a compensatory kind of action that you, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I broke my back when I was about, it's been a while now, 2006. And Mm. um, I was looking for an apartment in New York and it was, I'd moved back here a few years later and for, for quite a while, winters were really difficult and, um, a lot of things changed as a result of it, like steps walking upstairs changed. And anyway, I was looking for apartments and we, as we were looking, I felt really shy to say that like I couldn't do a walk up because it was such a thing in New York, right? Like you, what you can't do a third for a walk up, what kind of sort of like bougie individual are you? And I really pushed mm-hmm. me to try to like, I don't know, just like not pick places that needed to accommodate me. And um, at some point we found a building with an elevator and I remember being like really excited about it, but not wanting to say. And then one of my friends saying like, you know, it's fine to just tell the people that you're looking with that this is a thing that like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I don't know, there's a way in which like, that narrative of like, yeah, I need to stronger, better, faster is not, it's not helpful for yourself, but it's also really not helpful for other people. Right. And one of the really incredible things about that apartment was that it was one of the only accessible, like truly accessible apartments I've ever lived in. It was like, Mm. um, I imagine what, like, it was, it was like built for people to age, which I think is like really not a thing, um, especially in New York city. And so I just, I had friends, on wheelchairs and I had friends who, you know, like used, um, I had a friend who used a cane and was looking for a place to stay in New York. And like, it was the only place they could stay. And I, and I, in that year realized of that first year of living there that actually like there was something really, I don't know, like that was like a relief that the space brought. Um, and yeah, anyway, this is pretty circuitous, but just that like, it's, it's not helpful for anyone if you're constantly trying to adapt yourself around spaces versus like very clear information that spaces need to. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of, it sounds like in this, you know, in your relationship to this notion of your size and your smallness and your needs, all of those things kind of, involve a counter discourse around like over you know overcompensating or compensating or um overcorrecting is the word i'm looking for yeah like overcorrecting for something that is and, and i mean i think we all many many of us do that in all sorts of ways um but i think you know the it sounds like the intersection of of the experiences that you've had in your life, there are many different areas where you have felt compelled at least to try to compensate or try to like overcorrect. Um, 
for um, something that is maybe perceived as, I don't know, difficult or right. I don't know, you know, a, a problem or, or strange or different. Um, and yet there's this like one, you know, this one example you, you just gave of, you know, being in the dance class and having your smallness sort of valorized. And I'm wondering if like you also have kind of s- at the same time gone through experiences where you've maybe tried to tried to remain small in some ways or yeah that's a that's a big question you're a third mm. um <laughs> I yeah I mean I had a really I think you know like eating stuff is really really difficult and I'm just gonna talk about how it's sort of a lifelong relationship mm. um I I have a habit of giving myself deadlines and thinking like in like one year, I'm going to be over this thing. Um, and one of the things I've learned about eating is that you're, it's like a thing you do every day um, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and it, um, your relationship to it changes. And so I, I cannot, I think now I just need to think of it as something that's always going to be present for me, that like food is complex for me. It, it was complex for me before I had a name for it, which is like how I feel about so many things in my life. Like I was queer before I knew I was queer or I was like, like, you know, like I was like yes. making like my first like queer love and identified as straight for a good couple of years after that. And it's just like, whatever, like our brains are funny, but I think my relationship to food is one of those things. And it wasn't till I got to college and I was in my, second or second year and um I had a conversation with someone that ended up being a conversation that happened all night and it was the first time that I talked about my relationship to food but it wasn't it had been like years since I'd had a terrible relationship to food and I like I feel like terrible is another one of those words right but like one that was harmful to me at some point I hope my mother never hears this was hospitalized for not eating, but I, I fooled a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, in that moment. And it was like, Oh, it was like really hot. And like, I forgot to drink water and eat at school. And then I played mm-hmm. sports and then I passed, like how I got there is that I passed out and, um, like literally how I got there, but how I actually got there was to like have eaten. I think it was like watermelon for, a very long time. Um, anyway, this is probably intense for people who also have hard relationships to food. And so I don't mean to, yeah, talk about that too much, but I, the, the specifics too much, but I think that there is a way in which like, I, I think that, <laughs> I think that dancing was absolutely the catalyst for that. Mm. And that like shift from small and it, it changes, right? Like when you're a small kid, when you're a kid, like, at least in Pakistan, like everyone wants you to be like chubby and like have cheeks and like, there's like all this, like what is a cute baby and what is a cute kid? Although in my family, I have to say everyone really struggles with, I think their body stuff in a way that I mm. have as an adult where like my cousin had a baby and the baby was like this perfect little chunk and like they're, dad was like, so at what point are you going to stop feeding them that much? You know, 
Um, yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, that is, that is something in my family. But, but in general, like culturally, right? Like you, there's a lot of affirmation for that kind of a kid. And then it shifts when you're a teenager, like suddenly you're supposed to have like, by a certain point, <laughs> changed your body completely to be now acceptable in this mm-hmm. like new framework. And so it was hard for a while kind of, right. And then like, it, and then I like in dance class, it was fine. And then like, as dance, as I became a teenager, it was like, everyone just kept talking about how I could eat as much as I wanted and nothing happened. And that thing of my mother being afraid that people were thinking she wasn't feeding me went from that being her anxiety to being like really excited that that wasn't that like now it's helping me out you know whatever that means so Mm -hmm. I think um yeah I think there was like a commitment to maintaining that because first I couldn't do anything about it yeah as a kid and then I suddenly could and also I, I was really coming to terms with some stuff in my life that was had been really difficult as a kid at like throughout my childhood. And I felt so out of control as a kid. And it was such a, in, in my mind, it was like, I had, I had reclaimed control. And so I didn't even for years, like I said, I didn't even think of it as something that was like harmful to me, despite Mm -hmm. having gone to the hospital, you know, or like, like, and then coming to college and having that conversation with someone and realizing like, Oh wow, I'm I'm also part of a pretty big network of people that like, you know, again, like all of these things feel as real to us as they are true to us. So that, so it's like not like telling. I'm not trying to tell people like, oh, this isn't unique to you, and you're not not, not like that. But more just that sometimes it's really helpful to find community around because mm-hmm. it's less isolating. Yeah, 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 and I think you know, I'm glad you are talking about this in a way that it's sort of, I think the people who I've, who I've interviewed and I, the people I work with all, all the time as a therapist, you know, one of the things that feels often feels the most helpful is to talk about that notion of control as a help, you know, like that this emerged as something very like, you know, in the context of a a social world that was imposing certain standards, right? But, and that you were responding to, but that on a very deeply personal level, you know, your relationship to control of food and intake and nourishment sounds like it was, it actually served you quite well. Like it, it did help you kind of have a sense of, you know, even if it's an illusion, but a a sense of control. Um, And that that really, you know, it's, we could say it's harmful and it is, and it hurts. It's very dangerous. And yet I think it's also a very affecting coping mechanism for dealing with traumatic, you know, experiences in the body. And it sounds like it, it was, it has been, and all of those things for you. Yeah. And I think that's what, what's hard about survival strategies is that they're really like, you build a really strong relationship to them as they, as they give you some of the strength that you need in a moment or like as they allow you to, to just be or exist. And then at some point, maybe they stop serving you. And then it's really hard to let go of them. And that's the thing that I find is happening in my body right now is that like 
this feels like a big, like pregnancy feels like a big physical shift, but it's also like a big emotional shift. I feel like my mind is, my mind feels sometimes not like the mind that I remember just from a few months ago or something. My thoughts are different. And suddenly Mm. to think like, oh, for instance, like a relationship to food is a thing that I'm going to bring to a kid, right? Like whether I whether I want to or not, whether it's like, like I know explicitly and intellectually that I feel like that's the work that's almost easier is that you know what not to say. Right. And I, and I think these are, that's the way in which sometimes we find ourselves like enacting oppression is that we know not to say things. And so it's when some, when you're saying like, I didn't say anything problematic or I didn't, but the issue is that like the people around you sort of if they're if they're adept at experiencing that oppression, they know that regardless of whether you're saying it, it's happening, right? In all yeah. sorts of other ways. And so the idea of having a kid and then thinking about how, okay, so if this kid is like, so so this kid is gonna be probably big. Um and I'm a small, like I'm tiny, and I, I think everyone in my family is gonna and the average size of a baby is just different regionally. And mm-hmm. I, I know for, well, I know this because when I first told my mother, like she panicked about this baby potentially not being tiny. And mm. it was just really interesting. Like, hmm. you know, it's like this, like ideal, like this idea, this perfect, this, this idea of a perfect sized baby for her, right? Like not too small, not like premature and two and a half pounds and like super breakable or something. And then like, not too big and like definitely not like super chubby, whatever that means. And like, I don't know. It's just like all this information that I didn't, I sort of had to have the, I don't know. It's been hard to have those conversations. Like I know that you're going to love this kid, but also like really not helpful to start creating a narrative about what their size means, regardless of what it is, there's going to be a narrative, right? Like Mm -hmm. medium, small, large in relation to what, like, I don't know, but yeah it's going to create a narrative and then I'm going to have responses to it based on how I've seen myself. And Mm -hmm. there's a way in which like, I have had to think a lot about my relationship to food through this pregnancy. I have gestational diabetes and, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. and a really bad sweet tooth. And it's like, just one of my friends was saying that I'm, I'm like the last person on earth they wish that on because I really could like give up meals and eat candy bars for weeks on end. Um, But yeah, so then suddenly like now I have to monitor my food intake and I have to keep a food diary and all these things are not good for someone who really needs to suspend a control around food. Yes. Right. And then like, so I'm, I'm kind of in a triggered place and then like my mother commenting on the size of, a baby that she perceives to be like a harmless grandma thing to say, right? It just means that like suddenly like my survival strategies are totally in question and my relationship needs, I need to engage with them and like really think about, can I let this go? And if I let this Mm. go, will everything fall apart? And Mm. yeah, I don't know. I had this, um, I love a therapist, therapist save lives and my therapist uh, said something to me the other day about how I just talked about something really, really intense. And I'd said before, like, I didn't want to talk about it initially because I felt like the stakes were too high. Um, like in the past, 
contending with this difficult thing had meant getting really depressed and like getting really sad and um, really like going all the way to the edge with it. And then being really afraid that I, I didn't, wouldn't want to be here anymore. And then like talking about it again right now. And so part of what I had done is like disassociated and like compartmentalized and, and like, I'm not going to engage with this thing. And then like, you know, having to think about it right now. And at the end of it, we had this like conversation and she's like, well, what was your biggest fear? And I was like, that I wouldn't want to be here, but I, I am. And it's like, okay. And I'm here and I'm alive and I want to be. And, um, that's already different. And so mm. like, maybe I can let go of some of the things and the stakes aren't the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm giving you very circuitous responses, but everything feels so connected. It's so connected. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I mean that like as someone who's, who has been pregnant, who was pregnant. And um, I think there's something about, the unfolding or of the narratives that we hold in our bodies, um, that kind of get all of that gets sort of stirred up in lots of different situations, like, you know, in moments of illness or what, you know, there are lots of moments where that happens, but pregnancy is also one of them and, um, how we relate to our body, but also how we relate to kind of like, you know, it's so interesting hearing about your mom because it's, it's sort of like a, a, prejudgment about what, what you produce, like what your body produces or what it's capable of producing, you know, and there's all sorts of, yeah, there's just, there's a lot there that I think is, is really complicated and, um, does draw on a lot of our inherited stories or inherited sense of value that we place on, you know, what we can produce, what we're capable of, what our bodies do, how they perform. Um, and you throw in like a history with disordered eating into that mix. Um, yeah. And having to nourish, you know, being told how to nourish yourself right now. It's, it's extremely complex and I appreciate, I don't think there's like a real solution to it. It's just, it's really a moment of kind of the unfolding of that. I wonder if maybe, you know, you mentioned your therapist and I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of what currently and, and perhaps historically has been, you found to be helpful in terms of reckoning with, um, or, dealing with some of your history with disordered eating or with, um, trauma and, um, yeah, I mean, I know that we, you know, before the interview talked a little bit about the idea that like healing spaces are so have been in some ways or have always been so co-opted by this, by whiteness, you know, in a lot of ways and over-determined by whiteness. And I just wonder how, if you could speak a little bit, how you navigated that. It probably is different in pregnancy than it has been. Um, maybe some things are similar, but yeah. Oh my God. I think so much about how, how taking care of myself changed completely when I came to the the United States. For instance, I realized that, and this happened a little bit later, but my, my sister was assassinated in 2015 
And mm-hmm. I couldn't go home for her funeral. I ended up being like this big political mm-hmm. mess. And um, I, one of the things that happened when I went home the first time after, and I kind of avoided going home afterwards, I felt really like I wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. And the first time I went home, everywhere I went, like I got, she kind of ended up becoming mild, well, sort of pretty famous at the end of her life. And I wasn't there to watch so much of the fame. And so I didn't quite understand it. And I know that when she first died, I had so much resentment for it because I was like, who are all these people? Like, why is everyone suddenly so invested in, in her? And like, anyway, almost like jealous of everyone that had suddenly was like claiming her, but one of the things, and that's how it felt from afar. And then I went home and like everywhere I went, people were like, Hey, I've been thinking about you and your sister and I haven't seen you for a while. And I realized that something about grief back home that I really appreciate is that when someone dies, everyone just like everyone just shows the fuck up like literally just like bodies and bodies of people right like there's different like there's like a depending on your cultural practices like people you have the thing on the third day or you have a thing but the but the actual burial has to happen if you're muslim before sunset and so um Mm. you know and depending on the time of death or whatever but within 24 hours you are not alone there's hundreds and I don't mean like you, you don't have to be I think in her case it was a it was a much more public funeral and that's not even the part that I I get I mean I guess I feel sad I missed that too but you know it doesn't it's not that it's like 5,000 people but it's that it's 300 people and like what's considered close family or what's considered close it's like you know the Pakistani wedding and everyone's like oh it's just close family it's 450 people you know and it's so different and I think capitalism, whiteness, all these things shape sort of how we show up for people. And I, I just had this major realization when I went home, like what I'd really needed was that, and I had, I had people show up for me and I had people take care of me. And it was, I was incredible. Like I was incredibly supported, right? Like in the context of here, but what I had needed in my body just from having seen it my whole life and having experienced the loss of my grandmother and seeing how people had showed up for my mother or like, you know, like was this hundreds of people just showing up and handling stuff, right? Like Mm -hmm. all you got to do is take a shower and if you can put on some white clothes and that's, and then everyone else got it, you know? Mm. And that I think is one. So, so I think grief and loss is a is a big one. That like how you engage with and different cultural practices show up. I mean, mean different things to different people. But I think if it's something that you know in your body as healing, mm-hmm. then you have a different relationship to it. The same thing with being Muslim is that you know I grew up with a raging atheist for a father and um, a cultural context which was increasingly like. Pakistan was what people most mostly don't know is it was a secular country for most of its sort of existence. And mm-hmm. then like with uh, this military dictator, Ziaul Haq, who was propped up by the U S government um, as they tried to gain power in Afghanistan, 
really funded the Islamization of Pakistan. And so for a long time, people were contending with the fact that this foreign thing was coming in, right? Like people didn't, and not that I have any feelings about people wearing hijabs or not wearing them, but hijabs weren't a cultural practice because mm-hmm. they just they just weren't, they're not indigenous to Pakistan. People cover their heads and that's indigenous to the desert because of weather. And so, you know, there's like, and there's like certain moments religiously where you cover your head, but it's not a, it's just very different from sort of how the public image of it is. And so I, yes, being Muslim was important and being culturally Muslim was very important. And also like as the country became increasingly politically Muslim, my parents, my mother was, you know, was one of the founders of the feminist movement along with a bunch of really incredible women. They were really contending with their relationship with Islam and being feminists and they landed at all sorts of different places, but my mother identified as a feminist Muslim. And anyway, so I grew up knowing how to be Muslim in a way that mm. is so helpful. And one of the things that that meant was, and often that just meant fun, right? Like it's like Christmas or on Eve, you go to all your elders and they give you money. Like, how can you not like that? And so, um, but one of the things that I really, that my grandmother taught me in, was really helpful was to pray and it it didn't occur to me that like how much like that had been useful to me mm-hmm. not because I till I till I la- when I was home I didn't have to explain it to anyone right like praying wasn't some display of piety it just kind of was and then I came here and I came here right after 9-11 or the year after 9-11 and or two years after, but it was still so thick in the air. And I absolutely hid the fact that I prayed because I suddenly felt like it was going to connote something that I didn't need it to connote. All that it was, was that like, it's a, it's a space, the, the way that I, you know, the way that Muslims pray is that there's like, you say a bunch of words that are in Arabic. And for me as a, non-Arabic speaker. It's just the ritual of saying them. And I know kind of vaguely, I mean, a lot of what they mean, but not to the extent that an Arabic speaker does maybe. And also it's, it's actually old Arabic. So it's who knows. And then there's like a ritual in terms of how you move your body. And then at the end, you kind of get to say your own bit. And the way that I was taught to say the bit at the end by my grandmother was like, you start off by sharing gratitude for all the things in your life then you sort of pray for all the people in your life and the things that you want good thing people you want good things for and then at the end of all that you ask for stuff for yourself but by the time you get to asking for stuff for yourself you've done this amazing ritual of um first having to think about your context and think about yourself as like of things bigger than yourself and so once you start thinking about gratitude and once you start thinking about like oh, I'm really grateful that like, I don't know, that I had I had food today or I, I got to sleep last night in a really comfortable bed. Then like by the time you get to your, your asks, it sort of shifts it a little bit, right? You're not mm-hmm. like, it's really, I find it to be really grounding. And mm-hmm. anyway, so I really hid that part of me. A lot of my friends didn't, I have friends even now who laugh about how they have no idea that I, that praying is a thing that I do and like have a lot of questions about it in ways that like, I don't think are, are like feel to them like dissonance. 
but they're not to me. I've tried to meditate in all sorts of ways, right? And sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not. But I know that something about being taught something really young mm-hmm. and having a relationship to it and knowing like, if I'm scared at night and I'm, I remember as a kid being scared and thinking, oh my God, it's time for my nighttime prayer. It's going to be fine. Like mm-hmm. once I sit down and do this like task of essentially meditating, I'll be less scared. And I know I'll be less scared. And so now to think about it is suddenly like, oh, wow, it's taken me so long to come back to being able to own something that, you know, I think that like being Muslim is, is less trendy than being like maybe going to an ashram in, you know, Pune or something. And, but, but the idea is the same, right? In, in so many ways, like we know what it's doing for our brains. We know that like, I know that in a moment of crisis to say a quick prayer is something that my grandmother would do before she acted. And it's that 15 seconds of like, I could react from this place of being really, really heightened. And not that it's not valid to have a big reaction to something that requires a big reaction, but that if I take the 15 seconds to ground myself, mm-hmm. that my reaction might be more useful mm-hmm. in the situation. And so things like that. And then like, you know, nature was a big one. I went to school in Western Massachusetts and we were in the woods and, you know, all I knew about American woods was like 90s horror movies where I was like, <laughs> why do you take a candlestick into the woods? Like I just, it just feels like ridiculous. Um, and I just thought the woods were so creepy. And I thought that like nature was, you know, everyone loved to hike suddenly and everyone like wanted to go on long walks. And I was like, this is so boring. Like I come from a big city. I want to do a thing. Like this is not an activity. But but I didn't realize so, so relatively recently, maybe like three years ago was that nature could be mine. Right. Mm. And that like, I've always loved trees and somehow being surrounded by them in Western Massachusetts with like 4% people of color and everyone else being really white meant that I thought trees were white people things versus like, Oh my God, I fucking love trees. Like just as a thing, they're so cool. Like the redwoods are so cool. They've seen all this stuff, their archives, they're, they keep us alive. Like just that even big cities are different. Like Karachi, where I'm from, is a huge city, but people have, it's a low city. It's not super built up and people have space for, the, the space for green in your house or like the, the idea of mm. courtyards or like the outside being inside is a thing people have always done. That's because it's it's like, the you know, you build your house around the breeze and around the trees. Like if there's a really old tree, you just build a house around it. You don't mm-hmm. stop it down to build a house. Yeah, there's just a million ways in which, like, I just started to believe that healing was not <laughs> was not mine. And it became this funny thing of, like, um, the more trauma you had or, like, the more oppression you faced, like, the less accessible healing becomes, which is so wild because, like, you know, my mother always jokes about how white people love bungee jumping because they don't die naturally enough, you know? And it's like this funny idea of like, 
who need like who needs those spaces and who should have access right. to them and whose practices have you taken like whose survival way to survive in the world have you taken you know and then made made yours and we talk a lot about yoga and sure that like that's like now now I feel like yoga is like so gentrified that it's not even a thing anymore but like um I remember having a really negative reaction to people like cleansing the air um quote unquote with and mm. specifically I mean like white people using like palo santo or something right and mm-hmm. I just remember feeling like what well, I don't I'm like this feels something about this doesn't feel right Mm-hmm. And then I went home. The last time I went home, my mother lit, uh, we call it Loban. It's coal. And I just looked up the English name for this because I was like, I have to be able to get it here somehow on Amazon. It didn't say Amazon. I don't use Amazon. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, but like, I was like, where do I get this thing anyway? So I was looking for Loban and I went home and my mom, my mother at the end of the night sort of like lit this Loban and walked around the whole house with it. And I was like, this is hilarious. Like this, what this thing that I felt like first I had a response to it. Cause it was like white people and Palo Santo. Sure. Like fine. But then it shifted to the practice itself feeling icky. And then I was like, Oh, I have no relationship to this. And then I went back home and I realized I've had that happen every night of my life. Mm-hmm. And then even things like, and I think actually in pregnancy, it's interesting because we have access to incredible like midwives and doulas and like people that can help you navigate pregnancy and feeling like I had, I was so averse to having a doula to like have a doula and like really love them because it just felt like it felt so indulgent. Like really someone's just gonna like, show up and like help me figure out how to navigate this like super terrifying thing and that they that like we're gonna talk about how my my biggest fear is like having a super preemie which is like really that's so it's so helpful when your doula is like well like maybe that's not about what your body's doing but maybe it's the story that you've just been told about yourself Mm -hmm. or like yeah there are so many things that having a doula helped me figure out that I just didn't even know I needed to figure out. Mm -hmm. And once it happened, it was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like everybody needs to have access to the stuff. But part of it is that like culturally, I think we've had people in our lives who've had babies before and are willing to like show up and teach you how to do it. But if you're living in New York, capitalism, like you're like, go, go, go. Like can't need things can't be, I don't know. There's like no space to struggle. There's no space for vulnerability. There's like, yeah. Yeah. I think what you're, yeah. And what part of what you're talking about is, especially with the doula is like, um, the doula becomes like an, you know, the narrative becomes that it's like an accessory, right. You know, like you have to, you, you must have a doula, right. And that what gets lost or what you're experiencing now in a really visceral way, (laughs) immediate and visceral way is that, you know, the, whatever it is, however it's formulated, this particular form of support, it brings up feelings of, you know, like deserving. And, you know, I think there's, there's kind of like a, as you said, an indulgence or an idea that, you know, being an activist, there's an aesthetic, you know, kind of, of rigidity around um, any kind of, you know, 
caring for the self that feels excessive, right? But I guess in some ways, you know, what you're describing is practices that are that are nourishing for you and that you are identifying are nourishing for you. And the whole time that you've been kind of answering my question, I've been thinking about your kid, like you're going to have a kid and part of what you're going to transmit to this kid, you know, is a sense of prioritizing the idea of seeking out and valuing practices that are nourishing for that kid, you know, and they might be different practices, but like seeing you doing that. And I don't, I don't necessarily think the self-care and like self-help discourses are so complicated. And obviously I'm immersed in them as a therapist, but, you know, even moving away from that, just kind of like cutting through and, and understanding what feels good and supportive in your body. Um, is is something I think that's not prioritized in a place like New York where it's go, 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 and it's, you know, overcompensate and it's, um, and it sounds like in part, you know, the past couple of years, at least you've been discovering or rediscovering the things that have like deep resonance in your body. Yeah. Yeah. It's a helpful time to be thinking about it because I think that I, I have this urgency, right? Like to figure out so much before the kid comes and I know I'm going to learn on them in a way that I wish that I, I don't know, right? Like I, it's just going to happen. I'm going to say a thing and it's going to hurt their feelings and it's going to be really profound. And I'm going to feel completely shattered by it like a million times a day probably. And yeah, I, I think that really thinking about having a kid who's going to be the kid, like the specific makeup of my kid is going to be that they're going to need a lot of, they're going to need a lot of affirmation in the world. Um, and they're probably not going to get it from the world at large. And so a lot of it is going to have to come from like within their family unit and mm-hmm. I, like gender, race, religion, like all of this, like every single, and I don't even know anything about their about their body and their relationship to their body yet and like how it's going to feel. And there's so many, I mean, it's, it's a new person in the world and they're, they're going to have people things. And like, I've had a lot of people things in my life and I imagine that they will too. And it just feels like one of the things that I really, really want them to know is that this feeling of like resilience that isn't about, isn't related to being okay all the time or isn't Mm -hmm. related to being like whatever people's conception of strength is all the time, you know? And just like you and your, you and your body and and you and yourself are enough and you have enough in you. And, and, and that, that's a growing shifting idea. And maybe this is like very ephemeral and vague, but that just like, that feeling of indulgence that you're describing that I have, I, I don't, I realize how much of that comes from oppression and my relationship to oppression. Like what is indulgent is nothing that I would tell someone else is indulgent, but what I conceive of as, as indulgent for myself is a very different standard. Mm-hmm. So it's taken me a long time to be someone that like wants to dress up in the world mm. and you know, it's not really happening in this right now at this stage. Um, but it's, 
Hmm. But, but like, you know, that you were thinking about saying about aesthetics and activism, I was talking, I went to a talk that Tourmaline and Juliana Huxtable gave, and they were talking a lot about aesthetics and how, hmm. you know, like to feel valid as an activist. I think Tourmaline was talking about how like feeling valid as an activist meant that like you had to wear, you, ha- you had to have a certain aesthetic because anything beyond that was indulgent. Right. And so. Mm-hmm. Similar to that, it's like, I don't know, like, if you want to wear, like, if you really want to dress up for, like, Wednesday morning, third grade, like, it's, like, a wedding, like, fucking go for it, you know? And then, like, let's have a conversation about what that's going to mean when you go to, you go and you come back and you realize that everyone thought that was maybe too much. And, like, where are the boundaries of too much? And is it really too, like what, I don't know, just like all of those, those like mundane, I feel like you have so much more information about this, right? Because like, I don't know, tell me, tell me things. How do you know? The way I'm hearing you, it's so amazing because I'm like, you're already thinking like a parent, you're already aware of how, I feel like so many people have these kind of romanticized notions of, I'm going, you know, like they're really, they're really skirting around potential conflicts and you're, you know, you're, I just imagine you're going to be really in it with your kid, which is amazing. I mean, I, I have a kid who's, who's, who basically is the kid who wears the, you know, like dress up, dresses up like a wedding, you know, in third grade or whatever, you know what I mean? Like dressed up out, like, like she was preparing to go to a club or something for her class picture. You know what I'm saying? Like I have a kid who is, who is really pushing the bounds of certain things and it's complicated for her. I mean, she has like certain privileges, um, that allow her to do that, I think, um, in certain ways. But I, I also think that what you're talking about around permission is so that the permission or the kind of like the, yeah, the permissiveness comes from you, comes from within the family around like nurturing these parts of the being this kid, you know, um, in a way that, that I think is, you know, it's often reparative for me um, because I grew up in a very constricted and restrained and, you know, rule bound and, you know, not feminist household. So it's reparative for me, but it also requires a lot from me around, like you're saying, around kind of shifting your own um, locked in or habitual ways that you relate to yourself and your needs and what is too much for you and, and all of that. So I think, you know, it's, it's really beautiful, actually. I feel like you're already, you're really talking like someone who's, who's in it, in it already um in the parenting thing I mean (laughs) yeah yeah no for real and and I guess I just you know I want to ask before we get to kind of some of what you are up to I I I guess I want to ask a little bit more about what is it what it's felt like to think about I mean you're not as I just said you're pretty much you're already parenting right but what it's like to think about you know, being a queer Muslim parent in the United States, like what, I don't know. I mean, there are lots of discourses around having children and deciding to do that and all of that, but I'm just curious how you 
it's a big question, but maybe there's some aspect of it that, that really resonates for you that you'd like to talk about. I think when I, I think the queerness and gender piece and also the parents, other kid and they're, they're black, they're non-binary. Um, I'm an immigrant, I'm queer, I'm Muslim. Both of us feel really committed to not, to thinking about gender in terms of this baby. Um, and there's this like, and then having to contend with like, how family's going to perceive that. And like, how do we, how do we talk about, I don't know, like pronouns and how like my gender has changed a lot. Um, (laughs) and like, who am I going to show up to like, who am I going to show up as at different times of their life? Are they, are they going to be embarrassed of us? Are they going to wish? I mean, I think the answer just is yes. They're going to be embarrassed of us. Like that's just a given, right? But like, is this liberatory? Yeah. Are these frameworks helpful? You know, being the kid that like got myself, like being the kid that learned about sex before everyone else. Cause my dad was just like, we're just going to have this conversation and then going to school and having that conversation and realized realizing that it didn't quite give me the social currency that I anticipated it would. Mm-hmm. Um, not with my classmates or with my teachers. And so like, or like, you know, like I said, my dad's a raging atheist and like his version of Islam was different from, we had religion Mm -hmm. class that was like mandatory under the government at the time in the early eighties, which is a bizarre thing to do to six year olds. But, um, you know, I had all these questions, like, it's like, why does my parents were also like super hippies. So a lot of like Islamic history ends up being about conquest. And so like, that's what they're teaching six-year-olds, which is like, I don't know. I just, I just think a bad plan. Um, but asking in religion class, like why, why do we keep learning about these battles? Like what's like, what's awesome about them? Like you're just describing conquer and people dying and a lot of violence and, you know, being like, how come we're not talking about the fact that like Aisha, who's a historic figure led battle and she's one of the few like women historic figures that led a battle. Like if we're going to be talking about this stuff, like why aren't we talking mm-hmm. about this other stuff and really pissing people off, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit nervous about, I don't think the solution is like to not give kids information, but I'm a little bit nervous about what that information is going to mean at different stages of their life. Right. Like mm-hmm. you're like, so often I've heard from my friends that they were like outcasts and weirdos in school, whatever like that meant. Mm -hmm. And then they went to college and suddenly it was cool to know stuff. And that's a long time. One, is my kid going to go to college? Two, is college going to be a thing that anyone can afford? Like, are we going to have a planet? I don't know. Like there's so many big questions about what the future looks like, but that's like 18 years of waiting. And I know I waited that long. Exactly. Right. Like, I feel a little bit nervous about my, my own being threshold for watching my kids inevitable and navigate. Yeah. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what their complexion is going to be, but that's regardless of what it is, it's going to be a conversation. Um, like, yeah, just, I mean, just like everything and It's gonna. It's funny. I was thinking the other day about like food allergies, and if my kid's gonna have food allergies, and how much my Pakistani family will think that's not a thing, right? And like, 
they're going to, there's going to be all this, these ways in which like, they're going to think that my kid is like some, it's like, oh, they're so American. They're so foreign. American, right. Food allergies, yeah. you know? And then I'm like, but there's a whole science about why kids here have food allergies and that this is their context. And like, I watched a documentary about food allergies and like how these, like this, this, this little kid was talking about how they can never, they have to carry a different colored tray at school. Um, and then they have to sit in a different part of the cafeteria. And then anyway, it's just like, there's a, there's just going to be so, so much identity and power. And like, how do you find a, an educational institution that can hold some of that? Yeah. Um, especially if you're not, I don't know, like that stuff isn't super accessible. Schooling is really, conf- education is really confusing. Mm. And like, what does it mean to have white teachers teaching you about like indigenous genocide? And like, even if they're super practiced in that, like do white people really need to be teaching that to my child? And like, mm-hmm. just like, I don't even know, like all the, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know. I feel like you should just like, talk to me offline about anything you've learned and I'm just going to write it down and look back at it, you know, in moments of crises. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm learning all the time and thrown off all the time by all, by many of those questions. And I think, yes, we will definitely, I'm happy to provide some ideas about how I've navigated all of this. But I think one of the things that is really hitting me and hearing what you have to say is just, kind of what your threshold, and I think this is an interesting question just for this, like this podcast and this project is like, what is your threshold for experiencing the pain and discomfort of your child, right? You know, that like, where is your control? Where do you not have control? And, you know, those have been big questions for you in your own life. I think that figuring out how we relate to others, whether it be our children or our partners or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like it's hard enough having this body, like this life experience, this body, and then figuring out how to kind of like deeply and intimately, because all of what you're talking about feels like intimacy to me. It's just like, you're going to be so intimately involved in this child's world making, you know, and it's a lot, it's a lot to, to kind of <laughs> contend with, right? It's a lot. And, and yet it's, you're already doing it. So but it is a lot. And so, I mean, I appreciate just also for the sake of the people listening, you know, I appreciate you kind of expressing some of your vulnerabilities or questions that you have, because I think it's, it's, it's so common for people to feel these anxieties and to feel them as parents, you know, um, it's not, it never is really over, unfortunately. Um, that, that kind of, you know, it's like that thing you were talking about earlier where it's like you set a deadline. Like, I'm going to feel like I'm a good parent at this point. It's just like, no, it's not, it's, it, there is no deadline. It's just, it never ends. Um, but, you know, I, I know there's so much more that we could talk about and I really appreciate everything you've been willing to share. And I know one thing that we haven't talked at all about. And so for people listening, you know, if you enjoy listening to um, Rage speaking about anything, you might enjoy um, their podcast. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit about your podcast project. 
Yeah, thank you so much for letting me talk about it. Of course. Um, it was like the pre-baby. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking um, that. It's called Bad Brown Aunties. I host it with uh, one of my closest friends, Tanu Yakupitege. And Tanu and I both landed in the States on the same day at Logan Airport. And we met our first day here and went off to a small college in Western Massachusetts together. Um, and, you know, since then became migrants, which so first we came as international students and then we became migrants. And I don't think either of us anticipated the latter. I thought we were, I think we both thought we were going to go back to our respective homes. And what that meant was that we didn't migrate with people. And what that also meant was that we became each other's families. And mm. I can tell you that navigating the immigration system is deeply traumatizing even if you have a relatively like in our cases probably what would be considered an easy immigration story um of filling out forms and then them being approved you know uh, but there's still a lot of waiting and there's a lot of anxiety that comes with waiting and then um reliance becomes a really interesting dynamic like who can you rely on can you actually rely on people like can you ever can you ever um you like this feeling of constant gratitude to everyone around you for just letting mm -hmm. you be here and um, having to root yourself and simultaneously constantly prepare yourself for the reality that like you might not be able to. And I think Tanu and I navigated a lot of that together. We learned mm -hmm. like medical systems together and legal systems together mm -hmm. and like transportation together and, and developed sort of a shared but very, we have very, I mean, we're different people and we have very different experiences, but something about that shared experience was really, really helpful. And when we moved to New York, probably both about a decade ago, one of the things that we constantly felt frustrated about was that all the people that talked about any of the things that we had experienced were white people and people that hadn't experienced them themselves. And so we were kind of, it was less for us to talk about those things and more for us to just highlight all the incredible sort of like expertise and wisdom in our community around identity and power and like oppression and art and politics, but through the lens of like people who actually experienced it versus like the formal experts of things. And so all of our guests are people of color, which is you know, there's no dearth of incredible people of color. Mm -hmm. And um, the framework of auntie is helpful because I think culturally it's meant different things to different people. For us as South Asians, an auntie is, you know, has historically been defined as someone who like upholds the patriarchy and like gossips and, mm -hmm. you know, sits in a corner and it's like really like um, meddlesome. And like, there's just all these like n these negative tropes and both of us realized that in different ways, our aunties had been the reasons we'd survived and also the reasons that we had, like we had struggled and both of us have different definitions of aunties. But I think a lot of the, a lot of those tropes are just like patriarchal tropes. And mm -hmm. so like, is Miss Major an auntie? Absolutely. Like is our, mm -hmm. are we, is, you know, are we giving on as Pulan Devi and auntie? I mean, I don't know about self-identification, but maybe, right? Like, are we really giving aunties the place in social movements and struggle that they should have been given? Right. And 
like one of our guests talks about Winnie Mandela is their auntie and like, do we talk enough about Winnie Mandela? And like, why are the reasons that we, we don't? And especially if now we know that like Winnie Mandela was the sort of like more radical counterpart to Nelson Mandela, but is consistently sort of described as his wife. It's just, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, just thinking about, yeah, just thinking about the Mm. power of queer trans cis even women who have upheld have not upheld patriarchy but really challenged it but then still would have been boxed into this narrative of yeah of being vacuous or not really talking about substance you know and Mm. Mm -hmm. so wanting yeah it's a long answer but I really really like the process of making the podcast Mm -hmm. I don't know how it lands for people that hear it and I hope that they like it but Mm -hmm. it's kind of dreamy to talk to people about where they come from and what shaped them not so differently from you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like in, I mean, it's, I, it's a really beautiful project and I think a lot of what you just described really comes, comes through in, in how you are approaching the guests and um, like a lot of that intentionality, but it, I, I, yeah, I can relate to that feeling of, wanting kind of just wanting to have these conversations anyway. Um, and you know, like for selfish reasons and, and having, you know, imagining that maybe other people want to hear them, but you know, that there's something very gratifying about that. Yeah. And I can, I can definitely relate to that. Um, I, you know, we we're kind of out of time and I, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story and also, showing up for this project at a time when you, um, have a lot else on your mind, um, and going on in your body. So I, I really appreciate that. Oh my God, please. This has been really, really, this has been really, really helpful for me personally. Mm. And you're a really good listener. (laughs) And I, I have such a, I can't even tell you how much I went from not trusting therapists to loving them. Yeah. That's a complicated process. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, that's not, it's not always like, I, I don't think that everyone is going to necessarily reach that place because that's not, it doesn't mean that you interacted with the people that you should have had in your life when you needed them. But I've just had the benefit of some really lovely, hmm. thoughtful people in my life recently. And I really appreciate you being one mm-hmm. of them. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you too. <laughs> <laughs>